0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions too, you're in the right place.
0: Here we go. You sure did have a good time at that Christmas party, Matt. That's something I heard uh, more than once. Yeah. When I was drinking.
1: Uh, probably not from me.
0: No, no, not from you. <laughs> from from friends. You know, We in, in adulthood with kids and jobs, we had, I think, a pretty typical social life in that it, it was far from constant. It was pretty irregular. Uh, you know, a neighborhood barbecue once in a while or maybe a work outing here and there. But around the holidays, that amps up a little bit. There's more frequency to the just little neighborhood gatherings or or we had a we have a strong church friend group and that friend group would get together at least once during the holidays maybe more than once and and that statement the next time I would run into one of the people that was at the party you sure did have a good time at the Christmas party Matt it was not an accusation of alcoholism it wasn't even anything i was particularly embarrassed about it was just, hey, you had a few extra and tied one on pretty good and sometimes I do that and sometimes you do that and it was it was almost like a camaraderie thing. Mm-hmm. Now I blacked out a lot when I drank. I, I would lose my memory that I think most people that would listen to a podcast called the Untoxicated Podcast would know the difference between blackout and pass out, but just in case you don't Blackout is just when the memory flickers or goes out altogether, which is very common with heavy drinking, and as opposed to passing out when you lose consciousness, when you're in a blackout, you're fully conscious and aware of what's going on, you'll just have no memory of it later. And so when somebody would say to me, hey, you sure did have a good time at the Christmas party, Matt, I would get a little nervous that I had done something embarrassing that I couldn't particularly remember, but I... I was never necessarily embarrassed about how much I drank. I was potentially embarrassed about what the associated behavior would be like. But what we want to talk about today is society's tolerance for bad behavior and how the fact that I could get rip and drunk at a neighborhood Christmas party or a church Christmas party or a work Christmas party and not necessarily feel embarrassed about that because it's Relatively socially acceptable. Somebody or some multitude of people are going to go there. I know when we would do these neighborhood or, or church Christmas parties, you know, I, I would find the few people that were there that were hanging out by the beer cooler and they were going to be there until the thing was empty. And those were my people. And as long as I wasn't alone, then I felt comfortable. And I was never alone. There was always somebody else that could drink like me. What was it like from your perspective to go to these kind of social events the last few years of my drinking when you knew that that was my mindset? What was it like for you?
1: Well, I can think of one of the last ones that was during the holiday where you were drinking and it was to that to that point where I had like kind of given up and I'm like, his actions do not reflect on me. I had, you know, we've discussed often that I was done I didn't care anymore that sort of stuff so I guess I feel like I had this attachment so I wasn't that one it was kind of weird like I wasn't mad at you now the only thing was I remember us arguing about the plans changing and how I you were gonna you know we were gonna park here and then we could walk halfway home and blah 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 all this stupid stuff you know just so then you didn't have to be in control of the car but then you didn't have to release control to me to be the designated driver hmm. um, because you As thought you if deal, I had one drink is
0: better than mine
1: yeah you thought if I had one drink I was toast and I couldn't handle driving or I didn't even know how to put the key in the ignition I mean you made me feel so dumb um, but I remember we had friends that were going with us that were driving in from out of the city you know they were in the suburbs and it was this whole like caravan that I finally just like Wiped my hands and go, whatever you want.
0: Drinking at Christmas it didn't parties matter. Yeah. is way more complicated than not drinking at Christmas parties. Yeah. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. So I feel like the last Christmas party where you drank that we went to that was with our group of friends from church, it was actually fairly entertaining because there was one person I really like and she was getting pretty schnockered and you two were hysterical together. But most of the time, I don't want to like highlight and glorify drinking. Most of the time, I hated it. It started out fine, you had a plan, quickly that plan of how many you were going to drink went to the wayside, you were off and running, drinking as much as you could, sneaking, like, you know, acting like you would only have had a couple, or you would make your mimosas and yours would be, you know, or your screwdrivers, they'd have a lot more in them than anybody else, like very little mixer, just enough to make it the right color.
0: I know you say you don't want to glorify drinking, but you're making a really important point when you talk about how at this particular event, me and somebody else were really hilarious. When I think back about situations like that, or situations that I'm in now as the sober guy who is watching somebody else get drunk, you're laughing at we we are, as a society, laughing at that person's inability to control their motor function and their their loss of cognitive ability. So they're, we're laughing at their impairment. And that's totally acceptable. And the the thing that strikes me as just really crazy if, like let's say we didn't grow up in the society and you were just plopped down here. Like you're an alien from another planet and you plop into that Christmas party. Think how bizarre it would be. We're laughing at somebody's lack of motor function and lack of cognitive ability, but we're not losing respect for that person either, because they just had a little bit of extra fun at that Christmas party. who cares it it's it's almost and I, I mean I remember if if I threaded the needle, which was never something I was particularly good at because I was an alcoholic, but if I threaded the needle and I drank enough that I was funny and kind of bumbling and obnoxious, but I didn't go overboard to the point where I offended people then when somebody would recount that for me, because as I said, I was a blackout drunk, so I wouldn't necessarily know that that's what happened. But when someone would, would tell me what had happened, I would feel proud of that. Oh, look at me.
1: I didn't piss Funny anybody off. Funny drunk guy.
0: Well, I didn't piss anybody off and I wasn't boring. I didn't break something. I was the life of the party. Mm-hmm. And so getting drunk in our society, the way we do things, is admirable. In yeah. in in some ways, it's admirable until it's not. I mean, certainly when you're younger, right? When we were in our twenties, when we were in college and we didn't have kids, you know, if you were the one that stayed out, stayed up the latest with with the rest of the friends and hit it the hardest and did the craziest thing, then that was totally admirable. And so we go from that to being drunk is no longer. Okay, no longer admirable. It's growing up. And, you know, you're starting to do damage to your family and not fulfilling your own responsibilities. And societally, that's not okay. But the first part of everything we've talked about is totally okay. Um, when we grow up and add responsibilities, some people just naturally mature and others don't. And I'm in the when it comes to alcohol consumption and I'm in the category of when it comes to alcohol consumption, I did not mature. Did you have a sense that that was happening? I mean, you partied pretty hard in college, too. Did, did you could you see that we were diverging and I was going north and you were going south um, or, did, you know, was it a gradual thing for you or was it just like all of a sudden? Oh, my God, what have I done?
1: It was pretty early on I realized that, and kind of early on I felt like, oh my god, what have I done? Uh, Yeah, it was pretty evident, pretty early on, like even in our first move out together after you graduated and got your first quote-unquote real job, I I realized right away, like there was just, you, you know, like you started out, like I think we've talked about in podcasts, like having couple cocktails night because that's what your dad did when he got home from work but I could see that yours were not nearly
0: as weak and you know I could just sense it. So what, what actually happens I mean there's the progressive nature to the disease of alcoholism which we'll talk briefly about but what happens during this maturity process is so I'm not maturing I'm continuing the same patterns that I learned in my 20s and you are maturing so I'm actually not the one that's changing you're the one that's changing and that, is, that makes it really really difficult to not only recognize that the behavior is bad and the behavior is no longer acceptable but you know it's one of the things that keeps people from acknowledging that they've crossed the line into addiction because they're like crossed what line? I'm doing the exact same thing I've always done. Mm-hmm. It's just that the situation around you has changed. Oh, you've got four children now, and you're still blackout drinking most nights of the week. And and when I would when I talk about how I would blackout drink most nights of the week, it wasn't it wasn't like every night was a six hour party. I would just drink like before dinner cocktails, and at the end it was vodka, and it was pretty much always straight vodka and it was enough that i didn't have to drink for 6 hours i only had to drink for an hour before dinner and then my the lights would flicker and that's what i say it's important to understand the difference between blackout and pass out i'm not saying i would fall asleep into my mashed potatoes but most nights the next morning there were things i couldn't remember like what time did we actually put the kids to bed uh you know, when they were younger, did we read them a story? Did Sherry read a story? Did I? Because I would have, you know, I I wasn't completely zoned out of the family activities. I participated, uh, but I wouldn't always remember. And so, the, again, it's just I, I I'm not trying to uh, make excuses. I'm not trying to say that it's okay. I'm actually trying to say the exact opposite. It's so not okay. But the part that's not okay is that we societally accept this behavior for a long time. And then all of a sudden we go, oh, that that behavior's not acceptable anymore. <laughs> well, why was the behavior ever acceptable? Now, I do think we need to give a nod to the fact that alcoholism is a progressive disease. So my drinking did increase. And as stress increased, work and life stress increased, I was drinking rather than just to have fun or or to enjoy the company of the people that I was around I was drinking for medicinal purposes I was drinking, you know, everyone says I had a long day at work, I need a drink to relax that, again, that's completely socially acceptable to say that and it's completely not okay because you're telling your nervous system I am not going to let you figure out how to downregulate on your own I'm not going to let you figure out how to manage stress in a healthy way, I'm going to Pour this poison in my throat that's gonna, you know, make my brain not function properly so that I am medicating away the stress in a really non healthy way. But so as that amped up, as that stress and anxiety amped up for me, the drinking increased. Like I said, at the end, I was drinking straight vodka. You know, here's, here's, this is kind of interesting, I think. How that happened for me. There was a, a period of my work life when I was entertaining customers quite a bit. And I noticed that the, the older customers, the more rugged, the tougher, the manly men customers that I would entertain, they drank straight whiskey or straight vodka, no mixer. And so I went from, I mean, when I was in my 20s, when I was like a college kid, I drank rum and Cokes. And then I decided those were too sweet and too childlike and so I drank vodka tonics or gin and tonics for a while and then eventually I just stopped adding the tonic and drank straight liquor so in my own mind I thought this was a sign of maturity and success and manliness and ruggedness that I could drink vodka on the rocks with no mixer but you know and maybe there's something to that in that I was emulating people that I admired but really what I was doing was drinking harder and faster and getting the alcohol into my system more quickly and more potently. So, yes, I was doing the same thing that I had always done from our college years but I was doing it not just for fun I was doing it to medicinally and it was progressing in my little mind... It, <laughs> The progression was a progression of maturity and manliness, but where it was really happening was I was medicating harder and faster, and getting to was, the to the goal, getting drunk faster than than I had before.
1: So those those sitting across the table from these businessmen that were owners of steel companies or the upper management, mm-hmm. that they seemed like this that looked like the sign of adulthood. Yeah. And success,
0: yeah, to you. So. Well, again, I know I'm shifting all the blame, but I think that this is the topic of the conversation today. This is what society told me success looked mm-hmm. like. This guy who owned this little steel distributor and had 50 employees and all this equipment and was responsible for all this stuff was clearly more successful than me, the sales guy mm-hmm. who's trying to sell steel to him. So, and he's. Thirty years older than me too, so yeah, that's that
1: was admirable.
0: That's that's what I'm looking up to. I, you know, when I think back, I I don't think I noticed the, how they wore it on their face, so yeah. that they were all I met forty pounds <laughs> overweight, and I mean, if red noses. And, yeah, I don't think right. that that ever haggard looking. That never. I I didn't, never
1: thought what was what was going on behind the doors. Are they going home to a a loving wife and? healthy adult children or are they going home to a dark place and they're going to sit in their den and drink some more and pass out, you know?
0: Really never occurred to me because Mm -hmm. I didn't think I had a problem. I had never considered that I could potentially ever have a problem. I mean, I really didn't. I thought I was impervious. I thought as long as I didn't do hard drugs like cocaine or heroin, alcohol couldn't hurt me. I really believed that. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't look for signs on their... I do now. Man, I... I am very judgy. It's pretty bad, I suppose. You can
1: spot someone who wears the signs of alcohol. Well, the problem is because it changes the, your.
0: The problem is you typically never know the truth, right? It's not like other things where you, oh, you think that's what this person is, and then you later find out whether you were right or not. Mm-hmm. You often don't know. So I do a lot of guessing, judgmental guessing. Occasionally, someone will will reach out for help, and I'll be like, ah, they'll they'll be like, oh, you know. I drink too much. I'm worried about it. And I'll be like, yeah, I know. And they're like, what? <laughs> like, well, it was pretty obvious. But but for the most part, I judge people from afar and never never know the truth. But back then, I didn't. I thought, you know, I thought, well, I'll keep eating right and keep exercising. So I'll stay in shape. I won't, I won't gain the belly that they've got. But they are otherwise completely esteemable to me. And so really the way our society handles drinking from kids who start drinking in their teens and then just let loose in their twenties when they're free for the first time. And then, you know, somewhere along the lines, they settle down and have a family and maturity becomes the, the right decision. And I would say most do, but some don't. And it's, it's not like 99% of people do and 1% don't. I mean, there's 15 million alcoholics in this country. So there's a lot of us who don't. But it's kind of like Russian roulette. So that's the way I view our drinking society. Like Russian roulette. There's, I don't know, what? Six chambers in a old-style no. revolver and one of them's got a bullet in it?
1: I know zero about guns.
0: Okay. Well, I don't like no to help. talk about guns, so maybe that's enough about that. But there's a Really good chance that if you drink the way the majority of people do, meaning you start experimenting in high school and you hit it hard in your twenties, that there's a, a really good chance that you're not going to be able to just choose maturity when you reach your thirties and start having kids. It it you know a lot of people do, but a lot of people don't enough that. It's an epidemic problem in our country. And we just want to blame each individual person for their sins as an overdrinker, as opposed to looking at the, the bigger picture. But the bigger picture, if we want to solve the problem, we've got to own up to the fact that we've got a huge cultural problem. I, I, when I was thinking about what we would talk about in this episode, I... I wrote down some notes about cheating. I want to talk about cheating. Cheating on your spouse. Infidelity. Cheating would theoretically bring you pleasure, right? Because sex is pleasurable and it's a sexual act. So there's, you know, like I said, theoretically, pleasure from cheating. I wish our listeners could see the look (laughs) on your face. You're looking at me like, where the fuck are you going with this?
1: That's exactly, it's like I just have like a ticker tape going across my (laughs) forehead, like what the hell?
0: But here's the thing, cheating is never socially acceptable. When you are in high school even, I mean maybe it's not as serious an issue because you don't have a marriage and a family, but I can never remember a time when people were like, oh that's really cool that you're cheating on your girlfriend. Like that's, cheating is never the cool thing to do like drinking is. And certainly once you're married, I I mean, I suppose there are some, some different, you know, corners of society where it's almost acceptable, but it's never cool. It's never like, wow, look at that guy. He's got a wife and, you know, he schleps his secretary on the side. Nobody brags about it. I don't even think in like football locker rooms. Like it's, it's just, so anyway, I'm going to make my point.
1: Yes, please. Let's get on with this. Cheating
0: uh, would bring you pleasure, but it's never socially acceptable. So when you hit your 30s and you're married, for most of us, the vast, vast majority of us, we don't have to learn how to stop cheating. For most of us, we, we haven't, or if we have cheated on a high school girlfriend, we felt really bad about it and recognized the error of our ways and didn't do it again. So it's not like it's something that we glorified for two decades and then all of a sudden had to find a way to put the brakes on yeah. and stop doing it. So does are it make gonna, sense that I'm bringing this into the you conversation?
1: associate that to alcohol?
0: That's what I'm doing. Yeah. With alcohol. Yes. We do glorify, glorify it. it for a couple of decades. Yes. Like the over drinking part of it even. Yeah getting drunk is glorified for 2 decades and all of I a mean, sudden like getting drunk 21st is cool anymore. birthday. I
1: mean, that's all you're supposed to do is try to get your friend like so hammered.
0: Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah. But there's no celebration that I can think of at any point in in your life where we're like, "Yeah, let's go, you know, I don't care how committed I am. Let's go out and have sex with people who we aren't who I mean, aren't I mean, our girlfriend or, or aren't, I mean, it's just not part of it. So Stopping cheating isn't a thing because, I mean, certainly. I'm not saying that infidelity doesn't happen, but it's not glorified. Right. Now, next let's talk about murder. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to talk about...
1: I think that your point has been made.
0: Thanks. Murder. Thanks very much.
1: (laughs) No one glorifies that.
0: So, you know, the problem is the way we do it is the way we've done it for... I don't know, centuries? Since way back before you and I were around, where, like I said, experimentation in your teens, then you really start binge drinking in your 20s. And here's, and we accept that as a society, you know, boys will be boys. That's one of the things we hear said. I work a lot with the local school district, and when we want to talk about drug prevention programs, everybody's on board when we want to talk about alcohol prevention programs, there's a lot less enthusiasm and from the administration and from the parents. And the reason I'm convinced is because all these parents they experimented in their teens and binge drank in their 20s and they survived and they have successful careers and families so they think, what's wrong with that? Why would we try to prevent that? And it's a huge problem. Binge drinking in our early 20s it stunts brain development. There there are still, you know, if you're drinking in your teens and early 20s, that, uh, that lump on your shoulders is not fully developed yet. The prefrontal cortex specifically has a ways to go and it's scientifically proven that we are stunting brain development. There's risks of death. I mean, serious risks of death. When I think about what I did in college, oh, there gosh. were a number of times where I, like, uh it was a coin toss chance i could have died and why well, just think of like
1: and the youth like drinking and driving you know cuz they're new drivers don't have the experience. Prefrontal cortex hasn't fully developed. They don't really even know the difference, probably in a lot of ways, between their fully sober selves versus their buzzed and drunk selves. Yeah, you're I 17.
0: Just, you're probably yeah, a shitty driver and I, to begin with. Exactly. Even when
1: you're sober. Well, and I lived in like a rural area in a small town that we had a lot of rural area. Well, where did we have our house parties? Out at somebody's house out in the country. Country roads, animals, like dodging out in front like
0: or didn't didn't you guys even do the just get a case of beer and drive around like never actually go to somebody's house just drive around drinking
1: well I didn't drink beer because that smelled but I'm sure people did I mean um yeah like somebody would be the most of the time my friends we were kind of smart there was somebody that was the driver and then the other three or four people in the car were drinking like purple passions because we could put it in a soda cup and it looked like grape soda yeah you
0: know yeah and but when we talk about risks of death, you know drunk driving's obviously the most widely thought of one, most obvious and extremely deadly, but there's more than that. I remember you know, I was in a fraternity in college, and I remember some of the it wasn't even hazing, it wasn't even like when you were a pledge. there were like drinking contests and mm-hmm. you know chugging beer bongs we, we and... yeah, but even after beer would be like, well. Who can chug vodka the most? Oh, Who can chug vodka the fastest? Like crazy stuff where you go from zero to a million miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, your liver and the other processing parts of your body can't keep up yeah. and you're dead. I know the fraternity I belong to before I got there, someone had fallen out of a second story window onto a concrete slab and died. So, you know, it's rare when one of those kind of horrific things makes the news and everybody gasps. But the risk of death is there all the time. I just... I can't believe that I'm in my late 40s and I, the chances of me dying today are way less than they were when I was 20. Mm-hmm. I mean, the chances were 100 times worse on a given day that I would die when I was 20 than when I'm 48 years old. Mm-hmm. That's just crazy. and and But it's completely socially acceptable. Unwanted pregnancies and diseases. I mean, now, now I know I sound like an old man who's just being preachy, but it's true. I mean, where do the majority of these things happen? They happen when we're binge drinking in our late teens or early 20s. And so we just keep on turning a blind eye and saying, that's fine. Boys will be boys. That's That's how it is. But this is where all these life-changing tragedies, most of them happen when we're out of control uh, in in that age range. And then, you know, really bad sexual situations that involve consent, either questionable consent or no consent at all. Whether you're the male or the female, if you look at a traditional situation with consent – It's the male is pushing further than the female wants to go. So whether you're the male and you have accidentally, in air quotes, raped somebody at age 19 because you were both drunk. Or you're the female who has been put in this situation and said no and had someone forced upon you. I mean... I, I, I'm not trying to excuse the perpetrator in this situation, but either way, that's a horrid situation mm-hmm. to be in. So much regret, and yeah, to live with the rest of so your life. So much regret. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And but again, we just because you don't have the life skills to
1: determine whether you know you're going to get out of this situation easier by being forceful to say no, I'm not interested in getting up and walking away, or. You know, yeah. I mean, because
0: you just you've been in that that situation where you had to make a choice.
1: Mm -hmm. You just don't have the life skills, and so alcohol then totally takes that and throws what little you have and little self confidence that you have. Because I think you have to have self confidence to be able to handle yourself in situations like that. Throws that out the window.
0: But the alcohol is what puts you in that situation to begin with, right? And not even just your consumption, but the consumption of the people that you're around. Because I bet. The the guy who put you in that, backed you into that corner, mm-hmm. probably doesn't do that sober. Right, right. I'm not just again. Regretful. I'm not excusing the behavior of the perpetrator, but the fact is, uh, alcohol takes those hormones and ramps them up, and just wipes away the reason and logic and smart decision making. So it puts it puts us all in bad situations. So just accepting binge drinking and experimental drinking early on and saying that's just part of growing up, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem because what happens during those years and it's a huge problem because it's Russian roulette later in life when you're expected to mature and some of us can and some of us can't. And the percent, you know, if this was, a, you know, a fraction of a percentage of people who can't, then, the, then we're not having this discussion. Because it's an anomaly. But it's not an anomaly. It's it's a huge percentage of people who can't just turn it off. Later in life, we become high-functioning alcoholics. And I use that term. I get pushback on that term a lot. Like, do you think you're better than me because you are a high-functioning alcoholic versus a low-bottom alcoholic? No, that's not why I use that term at all. I don't think I'm better than anyone else who has had an addiction to alcohol. The reason I use that term is is because it explains the situation that person is in in life. And when when I was trying to decide whether I was an alcoholic or not, Sherry, I would compare myself to a gutter bum who pissed himself and say, "Well, well I'm not that. I've never slept in the gutter. You know, I've never drank liquor out of the bottle out of a paper bag. I'm clearly not an alcoholic." The differentiation I use it and talk about high functioning alcoholics because it gives some place most of us a place to classify ourselves and realize oh i don't have to be a gutter bum to be an alcoholic i can still be maintaining my job i can be holding on to my family by my fingernails i don't have to have had a dui and i could still be an alcoholic and it allows us to say yes i have a problem and i need to stop a lot faster than if our only comparison is you know somebody who's sleeping under a bridge but here's the problem with being a high-functioning alcoholic. For most of us, we have a lot of runway in a lot of areas in our lives. First of all, financial stability. You know, did I, I... I added it up at one point, but I don't remember what it is. I don't remember how many thousands of dollars I spent on booze. Would we, as a family of six, be better off if we had that money now or had invested that money or had otherwise spent that money than the way I spent it on alcohol? Absolutely. No question. And By the
1: way, I'm glad you you don't tell me that. You, you don't have that number. Oh. Because I would be very furious, I'm sure. Yeah. Even now. Yeah. Sorry. I don't blame you. Didn't mean to derail you, but... No. You just, that was what was going through my head. Was, I'm glad I don't have the financials in front of me.
0: I mean, you could figure it out. You could estimate it.
1: No, I did not find out how much things cost. Because remember, I didn't buy your alcohol.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. probably for the best. Yeah. But would we be better off with that money right now? Or having spent it a different way? hundred percent. But it didn't crush us. It didn't... All that... Those thousands and thousands of dollars I spent on alcohol didn't, you know...
1: Put us behind in our mortgage. Didn't derail and, us. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Nobody didn't get to do anything because that money was gone. Nope. So
1: everybody got their
0: braces in their glasses and their hearing <laughs> okay. aids. We, yeah, we got a lot of, a lot of that stuff, but, but so the, the financial stability in most high functioning alcoholic families is actually a deterrent to getting help because you can make it work. You can muddle along. I know you like to tell the story of when we were because we owned our own business and so it ebbed and flowed and sometimes it was good and sometimes it was bad and when we were in a down period at one point what I asked you if you could cancel your gym membership when uh, I continued to drink unabated
1: yeah.
0: and that was really frustrating because
1: I'm just gonna add the gym membership had free child care and activities for the kids so that was like free child care and a way to escape during yeah. the day so yes.
0: And ultimately, we kept both. And that's kind of the point I'm making. You kept your gym membership and I kept drinking. And even though it feels like we're tightening down and I mean, I think everybody does this. Everybody goes through periods where they look at their expenses and tightens down. It was never to the point where I had to stop drinking. There was always Mm -hmm. something else we could cut or we could just scrape by without cutting anything necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so that runway, that financial runway... It's nice, but it's actually a detractor when it comes to trying to find sobriety as a high-functioning alcoholic. Nobody wants to break up the family. That's another really important point. If you had met me and we were in our, I don't know, early 40s and I drank like I drank in my early 40s, there's a fair chance that you would not have been interested in me or attracted to me and we never would have gotten together. But when we're already together and we've got four kids and we run a business together and I start behaving that way, because again, the progressive nature of the disease, I'm not just happy drunk all the time. I'm somber, stress relieving drunk a lot of the time. You're trapped is too strong a word, but not by much. (laughs) Right? You're already, we're already connected in so many ways. And nobody wants to break that up. Nobody wants to be the bad guy who initiates the divorce and breaks up the family. Right. An, yeah. So is that the right decision sometimes? 100% absolutely. You and I have gotten to know a lot of people in situations, in alcoholic marriage situations where divorce is absolutely the right decision because there's there's no hope of recovery and sobriety and healing.
1: Right. And it's them and it's the partner... The sober partners saving themselves, right? Becoming un, unattached um, and connected financially, emotionally, legally, all of those things. It's a save yeah. yourself sort of situation.
0: But when you compare making that decision to separate and divorce when you're already in a family with a shared mortgage and kids That's and whatever, hard. versus. Oh, I'm just not going to get to know this person because as I'm meeting them, I realize that they drink too much. Mm-hmm. Those are miles and miles apart. Right. So much harder to separate because, again, nobody wants to break up the family. There's the, the cultural acceptance. This is a big one. When couples are trying to decide whether alcohol is a problem in the relationship... The argument usually goes something like this. The drinker often the man says I just drink like normal like like every guy I know has drinks after work and this is what our society and our culture expects and it's totally fine. And the, the spouse, usually the wife, recognizes this is not okay. You are missing out on family events. You're a grump to be around. It, there's This house is tension filled and you don't, you're not reliable and you're deceiving me and sees all of these negatives. But culture is on the side of the damn drinker
1: Mm -hmm.
0: because it's just how it's done. You come home and you pour a drink and that's fine. And nobody's allowed to say anything. And so it's so frequent. I mean, nearly a universalism, which I like to talk a lot about is this idea that um, you are the one, you spouse are the one with the drinking problem. Don't talk about my drinking problem. I drink like normal. Your lack of tolerance for my drinking is the problem. And it must have something to do with your childhood or how you were brought up or, you know, why don't you drink more? Why are we talking about me drinking less? You're the one with the drinking problem. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Or the lack of compassion and understanding you don't have that in that's a character flaw that you have that you must lack compassion and grace and understanding of the stress and the worry that I go through to like make you know make sure that there's a roof over your head like that sort of conversations I'm sure happen yeah absolutely. in many many households, even where you know and I think that's a very good highlight to to mention the um you know, not to disparage anyone who has lost their house because of alcoholism or lost their family to alcoholism, but the high-functioning alcoholics, because there's so many of them. They're probably your neighbors. You just don't know what's going on behind closed doors, and they don't want to admit or deal with any of that, um, you know,
0: Well, it, issues. That's exactly the next point I wanted to make it's such a secretive thing. It's such a misunderstood and secretive thing. It becomes uh, abusive. Alcohol consumption becomes a family secret because nobody wants the neighbors or the family to know how much we're drinking or that the, the high functioning alcoholic is drinking and keeping that secret becomes a stressful toll on the whole family. But you know again, going back to the original comparison, if you look at a gutter drunk who's pissing himself, there's no hiding that. It's very clear what this person's problem is. But if you look at the high functioning alcoholic family and the grass is getting mowed and there's no foreclosure sign in the front yard, then there's nothing to see here, so everyone around that that person and that family just assumes everything is fine, so the secrets. When you when you have that long runway of high functioning alcoholism because you're a long way from the gutter, the secrets do protect themselves. They protect the addiction and keep it flourishing uh, for far, far, far too long. And you know, and then there's the stigma of addiction. It I think about the comparison to cancer quite often. I don't know that it's always been this way necessarily, but nowadays, if you contract Cancer. If you get a cancer diagnosis, for the most part, I feel like people, the majority of people, will confide in friends and neighbors and family about their diagnosis. We have a friend um, who just is right now dealing with a cancer diagnosis and a surgery, and you know she rallied her support circle, her circle of friends and, and kept us all updated when new test results would come in and when the surgery was scheduled and, and we are at a long distance from her. We supported her as much as we could, you know, from a distance, but the people that were right there with her, were going to appointments with her and, and, you know, s- staying overnight with her and things like that. And so I think cancer is one of those things that people reach out for help in a very natural way for the most part, like I said. Not everybody. But the stigma of addiction is whatever, however you would describe cancer it makes addiction the exact opposite. Nobody asks for help. Nobody wants anyone to know what's going on.
1: Well, even if you do reach out to your friends, they don't know what to do.
0: And they don't know what to do. Like you
1: say, oh, I have cancer or I have to have surgery or, you know, whatever. They're like, let's bring you a casserole. then you know, nobody knows what to do. I mean, a casserole would have been nice some nights, you know. Yeah. After a bad weekend. Yeah. But even if, you know, we had friends and family that knew what was going on with your alcohol, th- th- what do you do for that?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's so stigmatized. People don't know what to do, and those that are afflicted don't want to talk about it. Um. And so... These are all the reasons that when we become when we we start with the socially acceptable experimentation in our teens and binge drinking in our 20s and then we don't mature in our 30s and we become the high functioning alcoholics we have this runway that lets us, I mean I have been very public that I think I was an active alcoholic for 10 years and I just use that number because that is from the start of the The first time I considered quitting drinking and tried to quit drinking until I actually made it into permanent sobriety, that was a full decade. So a full decade wasted because of my status as a high-functioning alcoholic, because I had lots of runway, because you didn't want to break up the family, because we had financial stability, because drinking was culturally accepted, because we were keeping the secret and successfully keeping the secret from the outside, and because of the stigma of addiction. For all of those reasons... My you know, destruction of our family continued for a full decade. Uh, and to you wanna blame none of me? That's fine. I, I don't blame myself. I blame alcohol and the culture and the society because I just did what everybody around me was doing. and um, I, I think that's where the change needs to take place. Blaming the alcoholics one by one. That isn't solving anything. We need to change the way we view alcohol as a society. So so now I'm sober and have been for five years. And our life is much, 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 much better. Our family life, our relationship, our marriage, all of that. It's been hard work. Sobriety, we say it all the time. Sobriety fixes nothing, but it is a prerequisite. So there's been a ton of work involved. But what is our reward, our societal reward for being sober now and being healthier, we don't get invited to stuff anymore. <laughs> that's that's our reward.
1: We just they're gonna act like the.
0: Uh,
1: I think they're afraid that we're gonna be the party poopers.
0: Exactly. Now we are. You know, at the tail end of our <laughs> second year of COVID, so some things have certainly been changed by COVID. There was nothing to be invited to for quite a while. But I feel like our, our friends are back out and oh yeah, hanging out again. I know. And we, I mean, we have been to a few things, but,
1: but I know, I know that we are not on the inner circle of the people that we used to
0: be in the inner circle, be in the inner circle with. And I think, I think cause
1: they are uncomfortable with what is going to, what it's going to be like for us to be in the midst of a normal party, quote unquote.
0: I think that's part of it. I think there's two things. I think there are people that think they're protecting us. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's not invite Matt and Sherry because we don't want Matt to get tempted.
1: Right, right.
0: That's part of it. I think there's there are two other things going on though too. I think there are some people that are like, you know, when they think of us teetotalers, which love that old timey word. I love it. When they think of us being there, it's almost like Like we say a lot in the recovery community, it makes the drinkers around us almost like flashes a mirror in their face. Like, oh, um, he stopped drinking. Do I need to consider, you know, and I used to drink just like him. Mm -hmm. So should I be thinking about my own drinking? So our mere mere presence makes others question Question the fact that they're going to get shit faced and act like, you know, be the life of the party and have somebody say, You sure did have a good time at that Christmas party. Have someone say (laughs) that to them the next week. Yeah. So, and And we kind of fall
1: out, and then you kind of fall out of that social circle because we did take, like, we rejected any invitation. um, And I had been secretly for a couple of years not accepting invitations and not letting you know that there were invitations to parties before you hit sobriety. So, I think we've kind of fallen out of that, like, like, you know, to the top of the list of like, oh, let's invite them because we hadn't been there for a few years. Yeah. Pre-COVID. You yeah. know, we hadn't been there for a few years so we had kind of fallen off of the radar I suppose and then when you know.
0: Yeah. Well, and and, and I think the other thing that some people think is they don't drink, they're not going to be any fun. I mean, I think there's a lot of stress when you're throwing a party, right, <laughs> to make sure everything's right. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you want is some wet blanket there that isn't any fun. Yeah, I like to think I'm still fun.
1: Oh, you are still fun. Oh, You're you. still a lot of fun. Oh, gosh! Yeah. I,
0: I even had I one of
1: our people, like from our inner circle at church that we used to have parties with, said he's so funny. He's still so funny. I'm so glad that alcohol didn't take that away. Oh
0: goodness, I wasn't sucking up for a compliment there. No, but I'll and take I know it. you weren't. Thank you.
1: But I mean, I just feel like if people had like give us a chance, you know. But it is funny because I think. I was in a situation last night where there were people that were drinking alcohol and then a few of us that were not drinking alcohol and the reactions of people that were new that didn't know that I drank or whatever, like they were like, Oh, didn't know that you didn't drink. Yeah. They, you know, and they're like, Oh, what are you drinking? That looks interesting. And I had made a non-alcoholic little, you know, bubbly thing. And I told them, Oh, you know, Oh, like, Oh, I wonder what her story is or. Oh yeah.
0: That's another part. Yeah, it's it's like, you know, some of the legends in the recovery community, like the Holly Whitakers and the Laura McCowns, I've heard them say, and Annie Grace, you know, alcohol is the only thing that you have to, the only lethal drug that you have to explain why you're not drinking it. If you're yeah. not shooting up heroin, nobody asks you why you're not shooting up heroin.
1: I guess unless you're not but in a heroin, Dan,
0: but... Well, yeah. <laughs> but if you don't have a drink in your hand, everybody wants to know why. What's yeah, wrong like, with you? Yeah, like, you're not What's even your going to have want... Yeah. No,
1: I just don't want any.
0: No, I. when I sign off of poison, I decide no poison is better than one poison. But, you know, even with that uh, that reward for for permanent sobriety, missing out on some... You know, but the honest truth is, too, when we do go to, to social events, the kind of neighborhood parties or church get-togethers, like I was mentioning at the beginning... My interest level has changed dramatically too. I enjoy going there, and I enjoy
1: like the first hour, and then yeah, like for like, forty-five minutes. Okay. Yeah. And then you are like, mm. That's depending much... on how many pre-partied.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. The the intoxication level of the other people is part of it, but the other one is, I've done all my small talk. These aren't, you know, these aren't people that I'm here to solve the problems of the world with. And we've <laughs> talked about family vacation and how the kids are doing in school and. I don't really care about anything else, so I'm good. I'm gonna go home. I probably have something that can be. Doing and it's there. funny
1: now because I'm the one that wants to stay later at parties like that, whereas you know, you oh, you had to like be the last one there cleaning up. I'll I'm help you. A, I'll help you the load the dishwasher, and I'll just finish off yeah, everybody's drags still... of whatever you know.
0: Uh, yeah, our kids are asleep on good their times. couches,
1: so now I'm like because I'm used to small talking. So
0: absolutely. Well, here we are, Christmas season. We're right in the heart of it. When we're recording this podcast, we are exactly halfway between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and it'll be about that same timing when we release it in a couple of days. So, you know, my heart honestly aches for families who are mm-hmm. dealing with alcoholism at Christmas time because. The social engagements amp up and the just stress and pressure you take the normal stress and pressure and add all the holiday festivity stress and pressure to it and alcohol if, if it's turned into something medicinal for you then you're probably gonna overdo it a number of times this season and mm-hmm. so um,
1: it's medicinal but you'll call it celebratory
0: Yeah, which is really unfortunate But if you can get past the bad situation that society has put you in and you can run out of runway even though the runway is bigger as a high functioning alcoholic and get to the point of getting alcohol out of your life whether that means sobriety for the alcoholic or that means um, just moving away from the alcoholic because sobriety is not forthcoming um, we certainly encourage you to do that and we are here to help you any way we can So, I don't know about you, Sherry, but I'm pretty pumped up about this Christmas, even though we won't be going to quite as many Christmas parties as maybe we used to. Uh, I'm really looking forward to just a great family experience and having fun with you. Trying to catch you under the mistletoe once in a while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You've got that same look on your face from earlier. I don't know
1: what I'm supposed to say there.
0: All right. Well, thanks for talking about um, the... You sure did have a good time at that Christmas party, Matt, episode with me. Absolutely. All right. Love you. Love you, too. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you
1: love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org.
0: If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. Shoutsobriety.org.